This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive. And there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. One of the main rules of pandemic life has been to limit touch. Handshaking, casual hugs are off limits. University of Arizona communication professor Corey Floyd researches physical affection, and he's documented something he calls touch hunger. Professor Floyd joins me now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So touch hunger, that's more than just wanting a hug every once in a while. It, it's, it's more like a need, a physiological need for a hug. You know, it really is. And people vary in how much they need touch from other people, uh, a hug, holding hands, somebody putting their arm around you. We vary from person to person in how much we need that. But for each of us, when we don't have our needs fulfilled, we start to feel that hunger for connection with other people. And it's very much like experiencing regular hunger in that we've gone long enough without fulfilling that need. And so we start to yearn for that. Now, if if I go without eating, I'm going to wither away and my systems will shut down. Is there anything even remotely that drastic if I go without touch? There is, actually. I know that sounds like a, a sort of a, a leap to say, but hmm. nature builds in these automatic reminders for us to meet uh, these fundamental needs that we have. And so if you don't eat for a while, that automatic reminder that's going to kick in is, is hunger, is that sensation that, boy, I really, need to, I really need to go find some food. And when we go for too long without meeting our needs for social connection, that built-in reminder that nature provides that kicks in is the sense of loneliness, hmm. that sense that I feel isolated, I, I'm, I'm without close connection. And as strange as it might sound to say, if we go too long without social connection, we really do begin to suffer both physically and mentally. An extreme case of that would be somebody in solitary confinement who after a very short period of time will start to experience detriments in their mental health, in their psychological well-being, and also in their physical health in terms of their stress hormones and in terms of the strength of their immune system. Oh, So it okay. really is something we have to pay attention to. Okay. It's not like your muscles start... Um you know, de- degrading, <laughs> but but inflammation, immunity, so, and that's so deeply tied to stress hormones. That's where Absolutely. you start to get the physical effects. That's right. Huh. Okay. And um, you, you said if you go too long without social connection, is, is that the same? I mean, you, you can have social connection, at least it seems like you can have social connection without having actual physical contact. That's true. And... Um, I think we're very fortunate to have gone through this pandemic in the digital age Mm. when technology has provided us some other outlets for maintaining social connection. But there is something special about touch. There is something that we miss about that. Even if I can talk to you over Zoom, even if I can see your face and hear your voice, there is something that we hunger for with respect to actual physical contact. And if we go too long without meeting that need, our bodies will respond in much the same way with this uh, decreasing sense of psychological wellness and even more vulnerability to illness as a result of suppression of our immune system. Does the quality of the touch matter? I mean, there's a big difference between a handshake with an acquaintance versus a hug from someone who you, you trust and who loves you? You know what matters even more than the quality of the touch itself is the quality of the relationship in which it's happening. And this has been a really interesting question for scientists. If a hug, for instance, is beneficial to us, does it matter who we're receiving that hug from? Mm. 
Is a hug from a stranger just as beneficial as a hug from a loved one? And it turns out, uh, at least what, what we know right now, is that there's something about the combination of the touch and the relationship in which it's occurring that really makes a difference. So a hug from a stranger, yes, actually can be beneficial to us. And many people have experienced that, let's say, in a hospital setting when they might be receiving a hug or, or, or holding hands with somebody that they don't know very well, but they're still receiving a sense of calmness, a sense of stress reduction, a sense of feeling not so alone in the world when that happens. But it turns out that the same touches from people that we love and care about are even more beneficial mm. to us. So, um, so yes, it does matter what kind of touch we're receiving. Obviously, an aggressive touch or something that's meant to harm us is, is not going to be welcome uh, in most situations. But it also really makes a difference who we're interacting with. And that's why so many people have felt such a sense of touch hunger during this pandemic, because we've been separated from our loved ones. There is this... Um this thing that's gone around uh, in pop culture about how um, you need eight, eight second long hugs a day to be healthy, which is a lot of hugs. I'm, I'm, I'm on the lower end of, you know, I feel like my need for physical <laughs> touch and eight, eight second hugs is a lot. I, that would be difficult for me to get every single day. What do you think about that recommendation? Is there any science to that? There's no science behind it. Um, and yet having said that, I, I do think it's, I do think the point of the recommendation is well taken, which is that we shouldn't neglect our need for touch, whatever that need ends up being. And as you pointed out, um, for some people, uh, they're very much on the low end of that continuum. And so you may need only one or two in a given day to feel like you've really met your requirements. I myself am on the high end of the continuum, so I probably need 10 or 12. Huh to feel the same sense of, of well-being. Um, so you know, what do you feel, like what does it feel like to you when you don't get oh enough gosh, during it, the it day? It feels like I, I haven't had enough sleep or I haven't had enough coffee. <laughs> I haven't had huh. enough of the other things that sustain me in, uh, in my day. Um, I start to feel uh, almost this sense of emptiness inside, like uh, something's just not right. And I think at the start of the pandemic, when we were all getting used to social distancing, I think many people felt that just general sense of dis-ease. And it took a while to kind of put their finger on why. Uh, obviously, a lot was going on that we were scrambling to, to catch up to. But I think that eventually, many people realized, gosh, I'm just really missing hugging my grandkids or getting to, to hold hands with my, uh, with my dear friends or even just seeing colleagues at work. Is there any substitute, any alternative? There are, <laughs> there are and, 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 and they're all imperfect substitutes. I want to sort of say that as a caveat, that none of these is a genuine replacement for touch, but one thing that many people have benefited from uh, during this time of social isolation has been interacting with animals, with pets, uh, and particularly with animals who have sort of evolved over the years to be companions for humans, like dogs and cats. When we interact with animals, we uh, actually get some of the same benefits that we do interacting and touching. Uh, other people. So that's been one substitute that a lot of folks have really benefited from. Um, as strange as it sounds, we can actually benefit ourselves in terms of stress reduction, in terms of pain reduction, by various forms of self-touch. So one thing that I know a lot of people do when they're feeling stressed is they might massage their own neck or they might massage their own shoulders or wring their hands. Mm -hmm. Uh, and often we do that just as kind of a stress-induced uh, activity, but it actually has some physiological benefit to us. There's a point at which our bodies don't really know the difference between self-touch and touch from other people. 
so that can be a substitute as well. Obviously, technology gives us the opportunity to talk to and hear from and see other people. And I don't want to discount that either. It's not the same thing as touch, but it's certainly far more beneficial than feeling actually isolated from other people. So these are all very imperfect substitutes, but they, they can tide us over in the meantime, while we are feeling that sense of social isolation from others. Are there any lasting effects to an an extended period of touch hunger? Absolutely. You know, um, early in in research in this area, we discovered that, uh, that infants who went long periods without touch um, developed effects that lasted the rest of their lives. They were slower to develop, and in particular, their immune systems were slower to develop, and they actually grew to be shorter in stature than, than infants who were touched more regularly. For adults, in the long term, the effects tend to appear in one of two ways. First of those is psychological. So we begin to feel many of the psychological effects of loneliness. And those can be substantial for people up to and including uh, really considering taking your own life, which is, you know, just an extreme um, uh, outcome to come from a prolonged period of uh, feeling really isolated from other people. And then as I keep alluding to, uh, there are long-term effects on the immune system, um, and so what, we, what happens is we become more um, susceptible to opportunistic illness, including viruses, which, of course, we're all paying a lot of attention to right now. Uh, and so we just find ourselves in a state uh, in which we feel very alone in the world. We feel very vulnerable and, and stressed by things that normally wouldn't cause us stress. And so those take a long-term effect uh, just in, 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 in the form of wear and tear on our minds, on our psyches, uh, and on our bodies. Why would this be the case, that, that, that humans would have this particular need? It's because we have evolved as a species to be a very social species. So we're unlike many of our cousins in the animal kingdom in that way who have evolved to live very solitary lives. Once they're weaned from their mothers, they live the rest of their lives in relative isolation. We are easily the most social of the social primates. And so for us, that is not just uh, a preference. It's not just something that we prefer or enjoy about our lives. It really is on the list of our fundamental needs as a species alongside things like eating and sleeping and drinking water and breathing oxygen. We don't normally think about our need for social engagement, our need for touch and social interaction as belonging on uh, a list of things like that, but it truly does. It's built into our DNA to be social, and that's why situations like solitary confinement, or even uh, when we find ourselves living alone for various reasons, that's why those begin to take such a toll and so quickly. Corey Floyd is a professor of communication at the University of Arizona. He's author of The Loneliness Cure. He studies and writes about the role of physical affection in relationships. Professor Floyd, thank you for your time today. I hope you get get a lot of hugs in your day. (laughs) You as well. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Coming up in about 20 minutes, people all over the world are surprisingly good at interpreting noises meant to communicate basic concepts. Did human language start as a universal set of grunts and growls? Just ahead, it's become more common in America for people to cut off ties with a family member. Why is estrangement on the rise? And why is reconciling so difficult? More great conversations from the Top of Mind archive are coming up. Thanks for tuning in today to Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. It's good to have you with us. One in four American adults has cut off contact with a family member. Often the rift is between a parent and an adult child. 
Most of them are upset about the estrangement. And yet it's stunningly common based on Carl Pilmer's national research data. Pilmer is a professor of human development and gerontology at Cornell University. He's written a book about his research called Fault Lines, Fractured Families and How to Mend Them. And he's with me now. Professor Pilmer, welcome. Thanks for your time. Well, and thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Is it your sense that estrangement between family members in America is becoming more common? This is, this is an increasing trend. Yeah, um, that's a great question. And, you know, I wish we had better data. We honestly don't know exactly how much it's increasing, but certainly anecdotal evidence and the experience of people in general does suggest that it's a growing problem. I think we have a number of reasons for that. And there are some which may have even increased in the past year or two. Even if we don't exactly know how much it's growing, though, as you pointed out in your introduction, it's very widespread, affecting as many as one in four Americans or over 70 million people. So it's a problem that's big enough to be concerned about and for people to take notice of. You also, though, point out in your work that it's a um, it's a problem people don't often want to talk about or to acknowledge. In fact, you sort of stumbled on it accidentally in, 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 in an attempt to write a much more uplifting book <laughs> than you initially, than, than you ended up writing. You're right. That was a very interesting thing. I was interviewing very old people about their advice for living, around 1,200 folks in a book called 30 Lessons for Living. And I asked them about their regrets. So I asked 80, 90, 100-year-olds what they regretted. I expected big ticket items like an affair or a shady business deal. I was not prepared for how many of them identified an unresolved estrangement either with their own parents or with their children or with a sibling. I was really stunned by how many of them had this as an enduring life regret from which they couldn't move on. That led me then to undertake these five years of interrelated studies looking at both estrangement and situations where people have managed to reconcile even after decades. Why would estrangement uh, be more common if it indeed is? What, what are some of the reasons you've identified? Well, I don't want to get too sociological with your listeners, but I'll venture into that realm for a moment. One thing that's changed is that relationships in families have become much more voluntary. So in my parents' generation, I'm in my mid-60s, there was a very strong sense of blood was thicker than water. You stuck together no matter what. Kids stayed with the family regardless of what their upbringing was like. Millennials and even folks a little older have generally different views. They love their parents, but if the relationship to them is not rewarding, if it's difficult, if it's aversive, they're more than willing to take a break from it now. So I think we have a changed landscape in terms of the degree to which parent-child relations and sibling relations are a little more like friendships. If they aren't working out, people may be willing to exit. Are there cultural, um, I mean, is has, has the... The landscape of therapy, psychological therapy or, or um, self-help, the self-help culture shifted in this direction, too, might be encouraging people drop the toxicity in your life. I guess I've heard that word toxic used a lot. That is a fascinating point, actually, uh, and one that no one's asked me before. That's absolutely true, that there's also a culture of toxic parents, of labeling relatives as toxic, which has made it somewhat more easy for people to estrange from them. Indeed, there are groups on Reddit and elsewhere that even promote estrangement as kind of a lifestyle choice. One thing I did find, however, is that even though people may endorse that view, almost everyone found an estrangement from a close relative to be difficult, to be stressful, even sometimes to be a form of chronic stress from which it was hard to recover. So I think that many people may feel like they can just exit their family, but in actual practice, it's very difficult. Well, talk to me about the consequences. Why, why is it? Why is it so rare if estrangement happens often because somebody is deciding this relationship is no longer good for me? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't want what this relationship brings to my life. I'm done. And then they, in fact, don't experience benefits as a result of that. Why? Why would that not work for them? It has to do a little bit with something that we can't control. 
And that's well-established biological bases of attachment. Mm -hmm. So one thing that human development experts have known for 60 or 70 years is when we grow up with our relatives, we irrationally feel attached to them. And when we're in trouble, we look to them as sources of support. When that bond is broken, you may rationally feel like it's just fine, but you often feel this sense of incompleteness. And that's one thing which really does happen. So I would interview people who told me at the beginning of the interview, they were fine with this, it was great. And they were weeping by the end as they thought about it. That's one factor. Another issue though, is our society. We still stigmatize people who are in this situation, even when they're in it for very good reasons. So almost all of my respondents describe feeling some sense of shame that it wasn't the kind of thing they could talk to others about. So I think you've got those two things. You have real bonds of attachment, but also strong social pressures. You are a gerontologist. Do you have particular concern then about the effects that this has on elderly individuals? I did study it to some extent in this context, although I'm also a more general family sociologist. So I, of course, went down the age uh, uh, stream, but I think there's one really important gerontological point I would love to make. People in the older generation, as I mentioned earlier, grew up with this sense that family trumps everything else. That even if it's difficult, even if you aren't the greatest parent in the world, your kids should stick with you. And the one thing that we know from decades of research, parents care more about these relationships than children do. Yeah, your adult children love you, but they're less invested than you are after a lifetime of, of investment in your kid. So one thing from a gerontological framework, I would argue, be careful before you draw that line in the sand with a child, because your child may be able to exit. Um, if you don't like their partner or their lifestyle choice or their sexual orientation, if you really make that known, you might lose that relationship. And many older people don't see that as a reality. And I think it's an important one. What other common themes did you find in these stories of family estrangement in terms of um, who initiates, what causes it? Yeah, you know, I, I, I've said before, if someone could tell you exactly what causes it, they would win a Nobel Prize or its equivalent. However, we did find common pathways to estrangement. And I'd say there are three big ones. One is what I call the long arm of the past, a history of harsh parenting, Parental divorce in childhood is, in fact, a major risk factor, especially with fathers. Uh, so children are more likely to become estranged from a parent if they're divorced. Another area I would call sociocultural aspects. People can become estranged over value differences and over expectations, and that's a problem. And finally, there are some situational ones. Money may not be the root of all evil, but it's definitely the root of a lot of estrangements and what I call the problematic in-law, that estrangements fairly frequently result when someone, quote, marries the wrong person in the eye of the family. So I think we've made some progress in understanding how people get there. Um, are, are, there are there typically warning signs uh, that, that, that sort of lead up to this event? You know, there often are. One of the things that we've noticed, I might call it a cascade of events, so one thing that tends to happen is there are value differences, unmet expectations, issues happen. And what happens then typically is communication starts to break down. It moves into more angry and hostile communication. And when it turns into contempt, that kind of stonewalling anger, people do then stonewall. So yeah, I think there is that kind of a cascade of events. I would also say that in many cases, there is a signature event, that moment, a flashbulb when something happens and the relationship can't recover. So one thing we argue in the book is that people should engage in a kind of first aid after that kind of awful event occurs. Yeah, I found the I found the advice in your book um, regarding how to how to mend and how to avoid estrangement to be really important. So we're going to spend some time on that. But um, a few more questions about how, how we get there and why we're in this moment that we are. You, I think you alluded a moment ago to the possibility that the pandemic the last couple of years may have exacerbated this trend. Why would you say that? 
You know, I maybe was a little confusing there. I feel we've had two simultaneous trends that unfortunately, Julie, it's too early to have a sense of the research on it. On the one hand, which we haven't mentioned, we've had the extraordinary political divide, which is very generational, so that mm. we've had issues where the politics of the last election, et cetera, have divided families. Interestingly, with COVID-19, we've done some small-scale research on this showing the reverse, that people have actually reconnected to some extent during the COVID-19 crisis. I think that's logical in the sense that people have become acutely aware of the possibility of a limited time horizon and that it may someday or soon be too late to reconcile. So actually we found in quite a few families that a strange sibling is coming to the Zoom meeting or is on the mm. family email chain. So I would say that with COVID-19, there actually may be an uptick in at least marginal or borderline reconciliation. So if any cloud has a silver lining, that could maybe be one of them. Assuming that your family um, isn't d deeply divided along vaccination lines or ideological lines surrounding COVID. I know that we've certainly had some disagreements in our family over some of that. And I could, you know, I could see where that that could add fuel to an already tense fire. Um, and then, of course, you mentioned the political stuff, too. So, uh, yeah, no, no, you raise a critical point. And, you know, I think that what's happened from those of us who study families is these conflicts have become much more personal and involving threats to one's own identity. And I think that's one reason why they've become so profound. I will say that uh, the political differences, I think, if the prior relationship was, was relatively positive, seem from our research to be less difficult to overcome. So I'm hopeful that some of these families who've been having such extraordinary difficulties may find reconciliation to be somewhat easier if the pre-existing relationship was pretty good. I'm speaking with Carl Pillemer. He's a professor of human development and gerontology at Cornell University, author of Fault Lines, Fractured Families and How to Mend Them. Uh, you talk about in the book how, how at a certain point you wanted to start talking to people who had managed to reconcile after uh, uh, an estrangement. And that was tricky <laughs> to find people who had reconciled. Why is that? Uh, is, is reconciliation just not all that common? You know, it is really hard. And yeah, I fell myself not in the depths of despair, but I began by interviewing strange people. Um, and the subtitle of the book is Fractured Families and How to Mend Them. After a couple of years, I felt I knew a lot about fractured families and very little about how to mend them. And then I interviewed one person who'd had just an awful childhood, awful parents, and had decided to reconcile for very good reasons. That turned me around and I was able to developed this database of over 100 reconciled people. Yeah, they are hard to find because there's no national database. As I mentioned in the book, the advice columnist Ask Amy happens to be a neighbor of mine. Hmm. And her putting it in her column got me a lot of interviewees. But it was hard to find people. Um, you know, often these estrangements do persist. I can't say that reconciliation is the norm. But I think what really added to the book was understanding from well over 100 people how they bridge the rift and how they move beyond these, you know, tremendously difficult relationships into at least some kind of a positive relationship in the present moment. Would you tell us about the woman who um, who had the t really terrible childhood, the truly neglectful and abusive parents, and how she came around to reconciling? I, I, I found that... I, too, found that quite inspiring. I'd love for you to tell us her story. You know, it was a turning point in the study. It's when I realized that I had to study reconciliation in addition to estrangement. So in the book, I call her Tricia. Everyone is a, you know, is a pseudonym. Her, uh, her father was a notorious local drug dealer. Her mother just simply abandoned the family uh, early in her childhood, leaving her in the hands of a father who was abusive physically, and whose associates abused Trisha sexually. Uh, she was actually forced to help him deal drugs in her uh, early adolescence. Uh, things came to a head when they were going to a family counseling session and he hit her. She told the counselor she was taken out of the home and she was allowed to become an emancipated minor, 
had nothing to do with them until she had her own children and got her life together. And she learned, and this is what we learned in a lot of reconciliation cases, they had changed. Things weren't frozen in time. They had gotten better and they were better people. And she decided she was a kind of person who wanted her child to know her grandparents and wanted to be part of a family. And the whole family, sounds miraculous, worked together to make this happen. She was the one, you're right, it was that kind of turning point in the study that I really uh, decided that we had to understand not just uh, the nature and dynamics of estrangement, but how do people, you know, bridge the rift? What are the key ingredients of mending that rift? One of the key things I discovered is to bury the past so that there was a philosopher who said, you know, you remember life backwards, but you have to live it forward. Almost everyone who reconciled gave up the idea that their parent or sibling was going to agree with them as to what went on in the past. Hmm. Basically, if you believe that your brother John was a sadist when you were growing up and John believes he was doing normal teasing 30 or 40 years afterward, you're never going to impose your view of the past on him. So that was one thing. People gave up these views of the past. And does that mean you just never bring it up again? You just don't talk about it? You both sort of jointly commit that we're not going to agree on that and we we will heretofore never discuss it? So here's what I learned in doing this book. There are solutions that are simple and difficult. And that really is one of them, as you've stated, that people created kind of a demilitarized zone about the past. Mm. They accepted the fact that they were never going to impose their narrative on the other person. It's very similar. Many of them gave up the idea that the other person had to apologize because honestly, they weren't looking for an apology for an event. They were looking for an apology for their entire childhood or Mm. for the person who the other person is. Mm. So it was that kind of letting go of the past that was really critical in reconciliation. Not easy, of course, I will admit. What else? Uh, before I interrupted, you said there was another uh, another key ingredient. Well, great. You know, thanks. And please feel free to always interrupt, because when you <laughs> ask an academic about their work, they can go on forever. Um, I would say another key piece is looking at one's own role in the estrangement. So one thing we learned about estrangements, everybody gets defensive. Everyone develops an incredibly defensive posture. They seek out other people who support their own position. At some point, everybody who reconciled, even if they didn't accept blame, analyzed what he or she, him or herself had done. So looking at your own role, finally, we discovered giving up expectations, understanding that the person is unlikely to change in the way you would like them to change, and accepting them as they are. Many people who were able to go through those three steps found a a sense of peace and growth and self-worth by having gone through that process. And that's why I advocate that unless you're in a dangerous or damaging situation where you shouldn't try to reconcile, it's usually worthwhile to give it a shot. It's almost always best to try. You know, if anything I argue in the book, one last chance is usually worth it for most people. So, you know, I talk in the book about a woman whose mother was awful and she became estranged from her. And she offered her one last chance under very specific terms. You, you know, and this is it. This is your last chance. And her mother knew she meant it. And they were able to have a relationship. So I do sometimes think people give up too easily with the caveat, of course, if there's a history of serious abuse or violence or something dangerous, people can make a very reasonable decision not to reconnect. And when these people reconnect, they tell you that they, uh, I mean, what is better about their life for having maybe maybe it's just a civil relationship now where their parent can be involved in their child's life in a sort of controlled way? You know, I can't imagine these are deeply warm relationships in most cases. But what, what benefit do, the, do they find? Now, it's very interesting when the causes were situational, like arguments over a will or things. People did come back to a restored relationship that was very good. So I will say it sometimes turns out really well. I have a chapter in the book, which is the question, are you ready to reconcile? And some of the factors to consider are, one, plain and simple is resources. 
it sometimes can be very beneficial to be back in a family, to be able to attend family events. I know that sounds trivial, but families aren't all just about love. They're also about resources. And so that's a key thing. I also noted that if people were really thinking about it, they felt their life was incomplete. They were contemplating it a lot. That was a sign that they were ready to reconcile. And the other thing I found in the book, which is one of the most important findings, is that when people made the effort to reconcile, when they did it, often with the help of a psychotherapist, I will say, or counseling, many of them felt it was an extraordinary personal growth experience, that even if the relationship wasn't perfect, if that person was back, they could actively process the relationship again. It helped them understand themselves better. So, so for many people who reconciled, it was, gosh, if I can do this, I can do anything kind of a feel. Hmm. And that's why I argue that, you know, like unless there are extremely serious problems, giving it a try is probably worthwhile. Is it worth the effort to try and prevent an estrangement? Oh, so many people who I spoke to said in one form or another, when I asked, what do you recommend for other people or what, you know, what would help your situation? And their answer was in one form or another, a time machine. Many people would love to go back and have a do-over for the critical events which led up to the estrangement. And I would like to make one key point for your listeners. When estrangement occurs over things like money, loans gone bad, wills and inheritance, which is a big issue, property, almost everyone wished that they had used a professional mediator, someone to come in and help the family mediate through its difficult problems. Another cause of estrangement was siblings trying to come back together after many years to care for an ill parent, and one person burdened with the caregiving who's angry at the rest. They too wished they'd had a social worker, counselor, someone to help them mediate it. So for prevention, I strongly recommend based on our interviews, get mediation or outside help before these situations turn into an estrangement. And that was a very common viewpoint from people who unfortunately did not reconcile. Carl Pillemer is a professor of human development and gerontology at Cornell University, author of Fault Lines, Fractured Families and How to Mend Them. Professor, thanks for your insights today. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks, Julie. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Coming up next, people all around the world are surprisingly good at interpreting noises meant to communicate basic concepts. Did human language start as a universal set of grunts and growls? I'm Julie Rose. The conversations in today's episode come from the Top of Mind archive. Thanks for taking time today to tune in to Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. It's time for some fun. Let's play charades. Since this is the radio, we'll make it vocal charades. Guess what sound? What this sound represents. Does that sound mean snake, fire, cut, or eat? Here it is again. The correct answer is cut. Sounds a little like scissors, right? And tricky as it seems, people playing this version of vocal charades generally do pretty well identifying the correct answer, no matter what language they speak or whether they can even read or write. Interesting, huh? Marcus Perlman is a professor of linguistics at the University of Birmingham in the UK. He conducted this research and he's with us now. Professor Perlman, welcome. Uh, Thank you. I'm happy to be here. What's the point of this line of research? What are you trying to figure out? What's the point? Well, Uh, I'm interested in my research, I'm interested in uh, the evolution of language. And I mean by that how languages, the 7,000 or so spoken languages that we have today, uh, how they came to be, and then also this bigger question of how humans evolved the capacity for for language. And so it's kind of this mystery, uh, at least in the face of it, uh, how we have you know, 7,000 languages with all these, you know, with the, all these vocabularies and all these grammatical patterns and so on. Uh, you know, where did they come from? They appear to be arbitrary, or at least that's the dogma of uh, in linguistics that 
you know, the, the form of a word uh, like dog, the sound of the word dog has nothing to do with its meaning. So, you know, where did the word dog come from? Hmm. And uh, you know, one theory is that uh, original languages began as, as gestures. You know, we can pantomime, we play charades, we can pantomime and, and depict our meaning with gestures. But we can't do that with, with vocalizations. That's the common idea. Uh, and that and means to that, that point, we, to that point, mm-hmm. it would be uh, if 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 the word were cut, <laughs> it would be quite easy for me to, to mime scissors cutting something. And if you saw me in person doing that, you would know immediately, probably, hopefully <laughs> what I was doing. Right, right. Whereas making a noise is a little trickier. It might take you a few guesses to figure that out. Yeah, right. Exactly. So the goal of the research was to determine the extent to which we can use our voice to play charades and how effectively that communicate can communicate across cultures. Okay. Um, how did you come up with the various sounds that you used? In fact, the, the one we just played, that cut noise, that was part of the research work that you did. How did you come up with these sounds to test on people? Yeah, so originally, and this was a few years ago now, uh, I was a postdoc at the University of Wisconsin uh, in Madison. And my uh, postdoc supervisor there, Gary Lupian, uh, professor of psychology, and I, uh, we wanted to tackle this problem that I just described to you, you know, how effectively can we, can we use our voice to communicate when we don't have words? And we, so we held a contest uh, with, you know, as part of a study where we invited people to submit uh, you know, vocalizations that they recorded for 30 different concepts. And the concepts we chose were, were things that we you know, loosely speculated would be relevant to our human ancestors. Uh, so different actions and different objects and different animals and different kinds of properties of things. And so people submitted the vocalizations and we played those to listeners uh, on the on the Internet. And these were uh, English speaking listeners. And the, the submission, you know, the set of 30 sounds that was guessed most accurately, that was the winner of the contest and they won prize money. Uh, but then we used their, their sounds uh, for the original study and then used them in the, the study that you're talking about today where we play them to people across different cultures and language backgrounds. Yeah. Okay. So you had people participating in this latest study, listening to these these sounds, which you had already judged to be the most effective at communicating the idea or the 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 the, the, the object, like snake or cut. <laughs> um, and 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 you chose people very specifically who were not only English speakers. You had what people speaking all kinds of languages that aren't not even related to English in any way. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we had, uh, well, we had two experiments. In the first one, it was an online experiment. And we had speakers of uh, something like 25 different languages, including English, uh, but languages from nine different language families. So, you know, languages that were related to English and languages that were not at all related to uh, English. Hmm. And then... And and so, um, what what sounds were people the best at identifying? Yeah, well, so the sound that people were best at across the world, no matter what language you speak, uh, is uh, was the concept sleep. And you might imagine that that was communicated uh, mostly by snoring sounds. Okay. And something like ninety-eight percent of people, or more than ninety-eight percent of people, you know, hear snoring that sound and they associate it with sleep. So that's like this one of the most universally you know, recognizable uh, you know, sounds that a person can make. Yeah. What about, um, well, here's another example. So this is a sound that you um, included in the study. It's clearly an animal growling. I believe that was intended to represent a tiger. I might have guessed, you know, maybe a lion or a bear. Or, I mean, anything that growls, right? Whatever but, your favorite, yeah, predatory <laughs> right, cat is, yeah. Right, right. But, um, but that's an example. Well, here's another example. Um, let's see if people can guess this one. So that's water. Also, um, you know, both in both cases, very representative of the what the thing actually sounds like, right? Um. Were those, do people tend to, it, it, they strike me quite similarly to, to the snoring sound for sleep. Like, oh, that's the sound of water. Like that, of course, that makes sense. Um, w- was that sort of a thread throughout your your findings that when the sound represented sort of the iconic sound of the thing itself, <laughs> that that was pretty likely to be identified accurately? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, actions and things that were associated with, you know, distinct sounds, distinguishing sounds, you know, the onomatopoeic representation of that sound could be used to, uh, you know, 
elicit you know the the, the broader concept. Uh, but we also had concepts that were you know a little bit more abstract. So uh, like uh, you know, proximal and distal concept like words like that versus this. So <laughs> that is far away. This is nearby. Uh, qualities like dull and sharp or, or big and small. So things that you know you might might be associated with some kind of sound, but not not so directly. Um, here's an example. This is the sound for good. Huh, huh. <laughs> Let's hear it again. Huh, huh. <laughs> I, uh, that's really funny to me. We we got a, a big kick out of that one. Um, how how well did people identify those sounds um, accurately during you know the, during your experiment? Yeah, well, so all the concepts that we tested, all 30, uh, were generally above chance. People could guess them to some some extent. And then there's a wide range you know, from there. So, uh, like, good was sort of in the middle of the pack, you know, around where chance would have been 10%, you're guessing, or, or about, I guess it was six, there are six alternatives. So one in chance would be one in six. And people were at about 50% on average, you know, across, across languages. So, so well above chance but not 98% like you got on sleep. Hmm. And and importantly, you gave people multiple choice. You didn't just play the sound and then just ask them to pull the meaning out of their head. <laughs> they, right. You said, here are six options. Which one is it? Which seems like that would be quite a bit easier. It's certainly, yeah. And we also had a, another experiment where we, uh, that was designed for people in, in um, you know, non-oral kinds of cultures where they, they don't use written language very much and you know, more remote away from the internet. And there, what we did is we took just the 12, we had 12 nouns essentially and 12 things and uh, that could be pictured. So we took 12, made a grid, of, printed out pictures, a grid of 12 pictures, and then people listened to the sound and pointed at the picture they thought it represented. Wow. Uh, so there were you know, 12 options instead of six. But. And and your finding is that in some cases, people are almost universally good at identifying, like sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe water, that kind of thing. Um, but that even on the really tricky, more abstract ones, they they guessed right better than chance, effectively. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And so mm-hmm. that tells you what? And that tells us that, uh, that the voice can be used pretty effectively uh, to communicate about a lot of different things, you know, actions, objects, properties, uh, and not just that, in another experiment uh, that was part of this that wasn't in the same paper, uh, you may have heard uh, of the booba kiki effect, uh, where the word booba elicits a rounded shape and the word kiki elicits uh, kind of a jagged or spiky shape. Uh, so there's a more abstract correspondence between uh, you know, the, the sounds of speech and shape, uh, visual shape. And, hold on, you know, hold so on. Again, so wait, wait, let me make sure. That is really interesting. So, and and this is true, it, like the word booba, uh, that sound evokes a rounded shape in people's minds, even in languages where they don't use the word bubble or boob, I guess. Yeah, are, right. Like those right, are two uh, words for things that have a rounded shape. And so even if you don't have those, you know, associations to make when you hear the the, the, the term booba, you're still going to think of a rounded shape. Yeah, most people do, uh, regardless of your, your language background. And there are, we did this, we ran this with uh, some a similar set of you know, 25 uh, groups of you know, speakers from different languages, different language families, et cetera. And uh, so like, about 90% or something of the groups were above chance at associating booba with the rounded shape and kiki with the spiky shape with just a couple exceptions, but it seems to be a pretty universal uh, intuition that people have. Okay. So the idea is that certain sounds have universal meaning or some sort of sense, regardless of culture, regardless of the words you actually use to describe those things. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, with booba, yeah. maybe it's something about the, the, the low back vowel or something about your, your, the bilabial consonant, your lips kind of puff out. Or, yeah. Uh, it's kind of this continuous word, uh, whereas kiki has these plosive stops in it. So it's kind of, you know, if you look at the, the spectrogram of kiki, you'll see breaks in the word that you, whereas you see a continuous word in booba. So maybe it has something to do with that. Uh, maybe so, all that makes you that makes you wonder then why languages are so different. Um, if 
you know, if humans have a sort of a a basic set of sounds that have a certain kind of agreed meaning, why, mm-hmm. you know, why don't we all have the same word basically for a rounded object? Yeah, well, I mean, languages certainly are different. And there, I mentioned there are about 7,000 languages spoken around the world currently, and they've been evolving for, you know, who knows how much time, but tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of years or something like that. So they've had a lot of time to through historical momentum to just kind of diverge from each other. But that said, there's increasingly there's a lot of evidence showing that uh, for, so, for some concepts, languages aren't that different after all. So for example, uh, we, are, uh, we have a study under review where we look at uh, the, the relationship between the consonant R, er, and uh, words for rough. And in English, you may be familiar with like the, the jingle from uh, the Ruffles Have Ridges commercial <laughs> where you trill your R. I can't trill my R. Ruffles, Ruffles Have, have Ridges. ridges. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And so something about that trilled R seems to convey something about that rough texture of the potato chip. And that that's in English. Uh, but then it turns out that if you look across your Indo-European languages, uh, most Indo-European languages have the same pattern where words that convey roughness tend to have an R in them. And then if you look beyond Indo-European languages across the world, what we find is that languages that have a trilled R in particular in their phonemic inventory, those languages tend to uh, have a trilled R in the word for rough much Mm -hmm. more often than you'd expect by, by chance. Wow, that is fascinating. Marcus Perlman is a professor of linguistics at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Thanks a lot for taking time today. Uh, Thank you. I appreciate it. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Cleon Wall, Ciara Hewlett, and Kyle Raymond produced the show. Find more episodes on the free BYU Radio app. And there is a lot to discover. We've been on the air every weekday since the start of 2015. You'd have to listen nonstop for five months to hear all the conversations we've had on Top of Mind. There's a lot of great stuff there, too. So episodes like the one you've heard today are a selection of the very best from our vast archive. I hope we've whetted your appetite for more in-depth conversations to come here on Top of Mind. We would love to know what you think of the show. Email us, topofmind at byu.edu. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. (laughs) 